Welcome to the Runner's World Show, where each week we entertain you, inspire you, and inform you about all things running. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. This week, our producer Brian Dalek's food shopping habits go under the microscope. Then in the kick, a cool new runner hangout opens in New York City. But first, my interview with Peter Sagel, host of NPR's news quiz, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Peter is not only one of the sharpest, funniest, and most successful radio hosts working today, but he's also a runner, a marathoner, in fact, and a Boston qualifier. Peter and I have a wide-ranging conversation about the rise of audio, his own start as an on-air personality, why comedians who run tend to not be very funny about their running, and how running helped him through the hardest year of his life. Running provided me with some, a reason quite literally to get out of bed some days when I really couldn't conjure up one. Uh, running gave me a community with my friends. It gave me purpose. It gave me something to focus on. Uh, and it gave me, how best to put this, the practice of persistence, which became very necessary. Stick around. Thanks for joining us. To many of you podcast listeners, Peter Sagel needs no introduction. He is the host of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, the weekly NPR news quiz. Just this month, the show celebrated its 19th anniversary, and Peter has been its host just about that entire time. Readers of Runner's World also know that Peter writes the Road Scholar column for the magazine. And believe me, he has explored just about every running angle you can think of in those pieces with his characteristic wit and uniquely perceptive take on our sport and its characters. Peter Sagal, so great to talk to you. Thank you for joining us on the Runner's World Show. My pleasure. I owe my career in running journalism to a strange idea you had many years ago, so <laughs> I am at your service. Well, of course we're going to talk about running, but first I do want to talk to you a little bit about your show. I am a huge fan of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me and have been for years. I'm sure lots of our listeners feel the same way. How did the show get started? Um, I have said for years that I need to come up with a better story than the rather dull truth. Something like, well, you know, I created my own major at Harvard in game show studies, and I had this dream of reviving the classic quiz show for the modern era, and I walked up and down the streets of New York trying to sell it to skeptical broadcast executives, but none of that is true. <laughs> um, what is true is that in the mid-'90s, this is going back some time, but that's how long I've been doing this, uh, NPR had this problem, which is that uh, all these wonderful listeners, these great NPR fans, would tune in on Monday morning to hear Morning Edition and then listen to that and All Things Considered all week. And then Saturday morning, they'd get up and they'd listen to Scott Simon and then Car Talk, and then they would go away and they wouldn't come back till Monday morning. None of the weekend shows at the time seemed to hold their interest. So somebody said, well, how about an entertainment show that, you know relies on the news is about the news i know a news quiz and uh, that's really where it came from um the show was launched in 1998 with me not as the host but as a panelist i had just been found in this national talent search they were looking for as one person put it to me funny people who read a lot of news i was a panelist on the original version of the show which wasn't that successful to be euphemistic about it and in a kind of desperation move in the early spring of 1998, uh, the executive producer at that time, Doug Berman, the same guy who created Car Talk, uh, said, well, gosh, we need a new host. How about that guy, Sagal? He seems hosty. <laughs> and I've been doing it ever since. So since 1998, and more specifically in the past couple of years only, audio programming and podcasting, right, has completely boomed. Yes, I feel like Wait, Wait has been such an institution. And, of course, you exist as a podcast, but you also exist as a radio show that's distributed on NPR stations all around the country. Yes. Sitting here today, what do you think about this sort of new golden age of audio that has sprung up around you? Do you feel like you're feeling a bit vindicated because we're all sort of getting what you've known for decades now? Well, I, I guess I don't feel personally vindicated. Because to me, there was never anything that was particularly surprising about it. People love radio. Um, you know, Rush Limbaugh is on the radio. 
and is one of the most influential voices for good or for bad there is. And and the reason people have always loved radio, which I guess we should start calling audio, because radio, of course, refers to the medium, not the not the content, is that it is so amazingly intimate. And this is something that I found out very early on, because I'm, I would meet people. This is back in the early days of the show when we only had listeners in the hundreds of thousands rather than the millions we do now. And I'd meet people, and they would act like they knew me, which was weird because I had never met them. And I quickly figured out what everybody who's been doing radio for a while knows, which is that people have this weird relationship with radio, audio, that they don't have with anything else. If you're watching television, there are people on a glass screen usually talking to each other, not to you. You're a voyeur. If you're listening to something on the radio, first of all, you're often doing it in the privacy of your daily moments, in your kitchen, in your bathroom, driving your car when you're alone, when you're, when you're just with your own head. And these people are speaking into your ear, some of them just to you. And that's a very intimate feeling. And, and people feel like they know you. And that is powerful. You know, that's why audio, I guess we'll call it podcast radio, have exploded. Because people finally figured that out. That if you can deliver a message in a voice that people want, enjoy, relate to, they will seek you out and get more of it. So with that in mind, there are hundreds and probably thousands of people at this very moment who are listening to you, listening to our conversation Yes. while they are running. Yes, I know. What do you have to say to those runners, Peter Sandel? Watch out for the curb. <laughs> no, as, as a runner myself, one of the happiest things I hear is when people come up and they tell me that our show uh, helps them with their long runs or with their training, you know, that they that they specifically save, I get this a lot, that they'll specifically save the last week's show for the next weekend's long run. And I love that because, uh, you know, we're all trying to help each other. And if my radio show helps distract people from uh, their the tedium of, you know, running the same street for the 400th time, then I'm happy to do it. What makes good radio? That is a good question, um, and it has to do, I think, with a kind of invisible craft. Um, when podcasts first began, and this maybe we're going back, oh, I don't know, six or seven years when you first heard the word podcast, and a, a lot of podcasts were really terrible because basically what people would do is they'd walk into a, a quiet room, sometimes a closet, and they'd talk into a mic for 25 or 40 minutes, and then they'd put it out on the air. And that is about as appealing as watching somebody's unedited home video. You know, just because you're saying it doesn't mean I should listen. To me, the thing that really caused the podcast explosion, this isn't an uh, unusual view, was Serial. I guess it was two, two and a half years ago now. Yep. And the reason Serial was so good and so popular was not that its story was so compelling. There are a lot of true crime stories. There's no particular reason why that one should have been the one that gripped the nation. It was that the production was so excellent, and excellent in really subtle ways. Um, the producers of that show, uh, Sarah Koenig and her partners, came out of uh, Ira Glass's shop at This American Life, where for 20 years now, he has been revolutionizing and advancing the art of the audio documentary. And he's been doing it in really interesting, subtle, but powerful ways by combining high levels of technical expertise, editing, music, underscoring, combinations of reportage and, and narration, all the things that This American Life is so well known for, with this amazing ability to be very present and real and sincere. So what you ended up happening with Serial was not just a story about a guy who was convicted of murder and may or may not have done it, depending on what we find, but a very human story about a woman named Sarah Koenig and her journey to try to figure out what happened. That's what was so compelling about it. And that did not happen by accident. It's not just that Sarah is this really interesting and smart person who you'd want to talk to anyway, which she is. It's that that podcast was so beautifully produced that you found yourself compelled by her story. It was as brilliantly made as any like Scorsese movie or anything flashy like that where the craft is really apparent. Yeah, radio has this almost extemporaneous feel sometimes, and I think most people probably don't realize how much craft goes into it, how much how much work and how much planning and how much editing and revising yes. goes into really high-quality shows. Yeah, and, and, and what happens is, is that 
now that it's started this cycle of podcast excellence, it reinforces. I mean, you've probably had the experience of watching an old film or maybe even more so an old TV show, say something from 20 or 30 years ago. And you're like, oh my God, this is terrible. The writing is bad. The, the cinematography is boring. It's flatly lit. Um, the, there's no edits. There's no visual interest. And that's because over the intervening years, it's gotten so much better that our expectations have risen. And that is happening very quickly with audio. People are now in, would never sit down and listen to just some guy gassing on in front of his uh, home microphone in his closet, as everybody was doing or some people were doing five years ago. And you have a theater background. Is that right? I do. Um, what I was doing before I was, a, I guess, a radio host was I was a playwright, sometimes director, sometimes actor, but mainly a writer, and entirely, almost entirely in the theater. So that was my experience. I was used to live theater. I was used to uh, everybody uh, who got to hear it being in the same room with it, and I was used to it never going anywhere else. Um, that was really weird for me when we were doing the show in the first five or seven years primarily in a studio because I couldn't see the audience. I couldn't. I couldn't get a sense of what they were enjoying or what they weren't. It was really yeah. weird for me. Yeah. Ira Glass himself gave me the classic bit of advice, which is when you're talking into a radio microphone, speaking to potentially millions of people, the trick is to just imagine one person and just speak to that one person, whoever you imagine. And the wisdom there is obvious because people experience it on the radio as an individual. However, I could never do that. I, I was like, is the one person I'm speaking to enjoying it? I imagine them getting bored and turning and walking away, and I'd get nervous. <laughs> So when we started finally doing it in front of a live audience, I was finally in my element because I had an audience in front of me. I could see what they were enjoying. And, of course, if you're doing a comedy show, having an audience is really kind of essential because it turns out if you say something funny, they might laugh. So you start working really hard to say something funny. So when you started this whole thing and sort of landed this gig by accident in 1998, you were not a runner, which you clearly are now. I, How did I, that get started? Well, that's an interesting thing. I wasn't, I wasn't. What I had been was a, a fairly serious runner uh, back when I was in high school. I was on my cross-country team, and I ran a bunch of races, and I was I, I got really intensely into it, maybe even too much so, um, lost maybe too much weight. And then starting with college and then into my 20s and on to my early 30s, I was just the occasional jogger, right? I mean, I would be the kind of guy who sometimes would, like, two or three times a week would go out and maybe push my kid around in the, in the jogging stroller for four or five miles if I could manage the time. And, and then as I had more kids and my job, this radio show, got more uh, intense, uh, it became even harder to do that. So I started to gain weight, and I wasn't running that much, and it was a, it was a whole mess. I'm sure it's a pretty typical story. Um, but then what happened is that I turned 40 in 2005, and I realized that uh, I was turning 40, and that meant I would die someday. So I decided if I ran a marathon, I would not die. And although that may seem silly, it's worked so far. <laughs> it cannot be disproven. It cannot be disproven, right. And so I ran the marathon like a lot of midlife crisis people do, and I finished it in around four hours, which I guess is slightly above average for your midlife crisis first-time marathoner. But then I did something that was not average, I guess, or not typical for people like that, is I said to myself, I wonder if I can do that faster. And uh, so I started really dedicating myself to training. I found a group of people who were also dedicated. I started training with them. I really upped my mileage and my my approach to the whole thing. I, I watched what I ate. I, you know, ramped up my mileage. I, don't, I did things much more correctly than I had the first time. Ran the second marathon in 2006, which qualified me for Boston in 2007 by exactly 20 seconds. And uh, that's when I went off to Boston and I think met you thereabouts when Runner's World did, uh, did, did a profile for me for I'm a Runner in the back of the magazine. That's right. That's right. That's how it all got started. That's how it all got started. And if I can tell this story, I remember in the interview with the journalist who was writing it up, I joked that the only problem with running is that there's not enough stuff to buy. I didn't use the word stuff. And, you know, and that I was je jealous of, like, golfers who get to buy new clubs every season and even triathletes who get to buy new bicycles. What do runners get? New shoes, pair of shorts, maybe that's it. And you called me up and said, hey, would you like to review gear for Runner's World? And I was like, yes! And that's how it all began. You started your running journalism career as a gear reviewer. Yeah. Little and, and known fact. Little known fact. You can still find them online, those early articles. I got assigned the weird stuff, 
like the uh, like the uh, Maasai running shoes and and the weird. Uh, I think my first one. There was, was a bodysuit in there yeah, somewhere. Yeah, bodysuits. There? there was weird stuff. There was socks and shoes. I I I, I actually wrote. Uh, I was the first person in Runner's World to write about Vibram Five Fingers foot gloves. I That's think, right. Back when they first came out, and and what would happen, and I. I, I, I <laughs> I would write these columns about these products, and I would say, you know, they're kind of interesting, but I really don't think they would help. You. They're help going to help your running very much. And eventually, I think that began to uh, grate on the editors <laughs> at the magazine because I kept saying, you know, that stuff that is like advertised in this magazine, it's probably not worth it. That was not, I think, a, a good message. So I. Um, Instead, shifted over to writing more generally about uh, running things and people who run and ideas about running. And I've been doing that now for, gosh, must be 10 years. Right. And that that was the beginning of the Road Scholar column. And man, right. have you covered the waterfront writing, I have. writing that column. You have written about the Boston Marathon bombings. You have run a beer mile. You have written about running while you have been... Uh, under the influence of a certain medicinal plant. Yes, you've legal in many about... states now. <laughs> right, right. You've run with the blurch. Yes. You have run, you've you've guided a blind runner mm -hmm. um, and, through and, a marathon. Uh, yeah, and done all kinds of fun things. And it's been really great because, I mean, the funny thing is, and this is what I tell people, is the problem with running is no one wants to hear you talk about it except other runners. Right. So, you know, if I were to go around and talk about these experiences, oh, I went for this run and I was doing this, I was thinking about that, people would immediately start eyeing the exit. But I can I can sort of formalize these thoughts and then write about it for the magazine, and people are like, yay, that's interesting because I like to run too. So it's been a great outlet to keep me from boring everybody else in my life. What were some of your favorite columns to write and, and, to, um, and to report beforehand? I... One of my one of my favorite ones uh, is actually one I think just last year. Um, I wrote about this guy who banded the same marathon, uh, the same Boston Marathon that was my first, two thousand seven. He was this guy named Jacob Seelheimer, and he advertised on the internet that he was going to run the Boston Marathon. This guy at the time, when he committed himself to do that, not only wasn't a marathoner, not only hadn't qualified for the Boston Marathon in any way, but was about 400 pounds. And he said, you know, I'm going to go, I'm going to get my health back, I'm going to go run the Boston Marathon. And as you know, because you edit a very well-respected uh, running magazine, that is a really dumb thing to do. <laughs> um, and not only is it a dumb thing to do to go from couch to Boston Marathon, uh, from gross obesity to trying to run one, it's also kind of an insult, or at least I felt, to those of us who actually qualified and trained and did everything right. And uh, this guy had stuck in my mind during all those years, and I was thinking about him, and I decided to uh, call him up. I was actually going to write about how, like, this. let me tell you how to do something wrong. Here's this guy named Jacob Seemheimer. He did everything wrong. You shouldn't, if you're grossly overweight, you shouldn't try to run a marathon. You should do it gradually. You should blah, blah, blah. But if I was going to criticize him, right, I had to talk to him. That's fair. So I called him up, and I found out that his story wasn't at all what I thought, that he's not this, you know, sort of craven guy who just, you know, casually did this because he thought he could, but somebody who was in a position in his life where he, and more to the point, his friends were afraid his life was in danger. And his friends came up with this idea, not as a lark, but as a way to help him get out of the very dark and dangerous place he was. And it kind of worked uh, in that he ran that marathon. It took him like, oh, God knows how long, 12 hours to slog his way through the, through the course. And what I found out was that his run was far really braver than mine, you know, I had I I had water stops, and a number on my chest, and people cheering, and he had none of those things, um, and I ended up instead of like you know tisk tisking this guy as I had begun when I first heard about him, I ended up really admiring him and 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 beginning to understand that he kind of represents more of what this sport should be about than you know most spandex guys who are you know obsessed with the latest Garmin. Yeah. Well, you you've thought a lot about banditing. One one of the one of my <laughs> yes, favorite that too. One of my favorite pieces that you've done for us 
was a piece. It was essentially a, a mea culpa about when you banded the Chicago Marathon. And, yes. And you then consulted a uh, Greek chorus of sorts of people to help you understand just how unethical it may or may not have been. You talked to a rabbi, you talked yes. to a professor at Harvard, yes. and you even talked to the race director. What did I you did. learn about the banditing phenomenon? Well, I should piece? explain, because this actually is very, very related to the magazine. What happened was, this was back in 2011, and I had undertaken this project where I was going to try to PR in a fall marathon, and I was going to document it for the magazine. And I eventually both PR'd and did document it for the magazine. But along the way, I was contributing blog posts and one fine day in the fall of 2011, about a month before my scheduled marathon, I had to do it like one of my last 20s. And I said, oh, it's the Chicago Marathon today. I will do something that many of my friends have done. And I will jump onto the course and run my 20 miles with the marathon just for the company and for the excitement of it. Then I'll jump off the course and I'll walk away and that will be my training run for the day. And I did it. And there was no problem. It was fine. And then I blogged about it. <laughs> And uh, I remember the first thing I heard was from an editor at the magazine at the time, Mark Remy, who's like, uh, Peter, have you checked the bulletin board yet? And the comment boards at Runner's World were filling up with yeah. the most, shall we say, stern um, denunciations of what I had done. Uh, very, very extreme things were said. Uh, people said, if I was there, I would have knocked him to the ground and... It was really bad. And I, I kind of, and then I mean, just when it began to die down, a guy from the Wall Street Journal wrote about it and put it back on the front page. So it started <laughs> all up again. Right. That was fun. And uh, basically what I decided to do rather than, you know, defend myself was to try to get another article out of it. And so, like you said, I, I decided to, to find out whether what I had done banditing a race was really that bad. Um, and what I found out is that, um, for the most part, an individual banditing a race, a particularly a really big race like Chicago, doesn't really make any difference. One person is not going to take up resources. Um, but it's not so it's not so much a theft as, you know, there's nothing that you really take, maybe a couple swallows of Gatorade here and there. Um, they don't need more police presence because you're, uh, you're out there. But what it really was and remains is kind of an offense against the community hmm. in that, you know, we all conduct ourselves in a certain way to support each other. And we all understand that we're going to, to, to do things a certain way and we're going to respect each other. And one of the things you do as a, a signal of respect to our fellow runners is if you run a race, you pay for it. And if you're not going to pay for it, then don't run it. And you're not going to take advantage of this enormous enterprise that would set up for the benefit and pleasure of many others by slipping in and, and sort of, you know, doing it without following the rules. Um, and my punishment, as it were, which was uh, laid out by the um, race director at Chicago, who I spoke to about this, was that he asked me the next year to volunteer uh, to be one of the people not taking advantage of the race as I had the prior year, but to be one of the people helping out. So I did. And in fact, that was the first of about three or four years I've uh, worked uh, at a water stop at the Chicago Marathon at mile 17. Uh, no, so you've continued it. to do that. Yeah, I've done it. Yeah. I've done it three or four. If I'm in town on the day and I'm not running the race, which I haven't done since 2010, then yeah, I will show up. It's my local runners group in the town where I live always operates a water stop at mile 17. That's where we are. So I've, I've shown up at five in the morning and poured Gatorade, mixed Gatorade in big buckets and poured it into cups and stacked them and handed them out and swept up cups and done all that. And uh, that's a generally a good thing for everybody to do, uh, by the way. If, if you've never done it, it's, it's, it's important because you do find out that, you know, it's not just the city closing the streets for you. It's thousands and thousands of people volunteering their time to make these big urban marathons happen. So you have written that you are, quote, not the ectomorphic ideal of the runner. To end put it quote. mildly. <laughs> However... You have a marathon PR of 309, hugely yes. impressive. Where do you see yourself on the continuum of the running community? On the decline, my friend. <laughs> um, basically, somebody once said this about me, and I think it's true. Uh, it was just a casual comment on Twitter, I think, in response to one of my articles. It was like, you know, Peter isn't the most talented runner, but he's stubborn. 
And I'm like, yeah, that's pretty much it. You know, because I'm not, I, I was, uh, even though I ran track, I ran cross country in high school, I was never a, a naturally talented runner. I don't look like a runner. A lot of times people look at me and they say, you run marathons because I'm stocky and my legs are short and uh, I'm, to put it mildly, not that sinewy kind of person you think of when you think of a long distance runner. But I, I just, for some reason, had the mindset and when I needed it, the willpower to just go after it. I think... Um, you know, there's an old there's an old saying like uh, those who can't play sports run, those who can't run run long distance, <laughs> and and that's me. For some reason, when I called upon it as a as in the middle of that midlife crisis, I had this ability to just keep going, and I was able during those I guess what really were the you know, like really prime five or six years of my running career leading up to that PR, just able to keep going after it in a way that surprised me. I, I did not know I had it in me. Uh, it's not a kind of discipline I was ever able to apply to most anything else in my life, but it worked out. And actually, and, and that to me is, you know, one of the glories of the sport, that um, you don't have to be talented. You just have to go after it, and amazing things can and will happen for you. I'm Why sorry, do you love it? Why do I love it? Yeah. Well, I mean, there are a lot of reasons. I mean, they range from the physical benefits that we all know about weight loss, improved attention span, improved focus, improved mood. There was an article just today in the New York Times about how exercise can prevent or forestall depression. Um, all the physical benefits. There's the community of it. One of the things that I often advise people to do is to get over this notion that running has to or even should be a solitary pursuit that my best friends outside my family and work are my running group, who I've spent an awful lot of time with, all moving in the same direction and smelling very badly. <laughs> um, but mainly, it's also, uh, you know, the most primal sport. It is, I think, so incredibly important today when we are all spending our time basically just looking, moving from one screen to another in the course of our day, completely immersed in input to just get out and do something physical, something basic and primal that gets you outside. But I honestly believe that people need to unplug when they run more now than ever. I know we were just talking about how many people listen to my show when they run or this podcast or many, many other things or music, and that's great. But I've realized that if I don't leave my phone at home or at least don't bring a headphone, I will not spend a single minute of the day without input. Yeah. And I just need to think and just let whatever thoughts come in. And doing that while running, I think, is the best way to do it. What's your running life like now? You're 51 now. And yes. What are, you, what are your goals? Do you think, well, uh, do you think a 308 marathon is still no. out in front of you? Or? <laughs> no, no. I, I do not. I, I, it's possible, but I don't think so. I, mainly, it's not so much my physical limitations. There are guys my age who've run faster marathons than that. It's just basically... It was a supreme effort to get that 309. I've been, I guess the best way is segueing into a more casual tourist runner. I love to run when I travel. I'm trying, once I sort of figure out some stuff in my personal life, to maybe do some more tourism races, to run marathons, not for, um, not for time, but for the experience of it. Uh, also, I've, I went and I guided uh, blind runners two more times after 2013. I did it in 2014 and 2015 as well in Boston. I'll probably do that again. I've got to figure that out. And I'd love to do that again uh, elsewhere to guide, uh, you know, para-athletes or, you know, Achilles running team pipe people. Because uh, I think that, you know, once you've put in your time and effort getting your own PRs and hitting your own goals, one great thing to do is to devote yourself to helping other people meet theirs. Yeah. And how are you finding that transition away from someone who trains in a very focused manner for a specific goal? To... It's, it's, it's kind of it's fine um, in that uh, you know, everybody knows, my, my running friends talk about this, like how wonderful it is to start running after your marathon for the year because you can just relax and run for pleasure. Well, I get to do that all year. <laughs> Yay! And that's and that's fun. Uh, I, I mean, I still do races. I do uh, this last year. I did I think three. I'll probably do more next year. Like for example, one of the races I do every year is in my hometown. A race that kind of sparked my modern running boom when I saw it going by my house 15 years ago. 
was like, oh, geez, there's a race here. Maybe I should do it next year. And I did it, and I've done it every year since. So it's, 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 it, they're important for me to sort of participate in the community, much less so to like, get a good time. What's the weirdest thing that's happened to you when, out on a, when you've been out on a run? Oh, my gosh. Uh, that is a good question. Um, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think. I, I've been relatively lucky in that uh, for some reason I haven't had uh, too many weird experiences running. Uh, certainly I've never, like, left in my sneakers and come back in an ambulance or in a police car. Although you, speaking of ambulances, you, you were hit by a car, although I know you were on a bike at the time. I was time. on a bike at the time, yeah. That, that was interesting. That was really kind of a blow, and I, I mean that metaphorically, because those of us who run a lot, we become really dependent upon it. And when all of a sudden something like that happens and you can't run anymore for a while, you, you get depressed. Yeah. And the mo- thing you usually do for your depression is you run, and you can't run, so you get more depressed. Oh, God. I will tell you what happened once. Um, we were in Minnesota, Minneapolis, a few years ago to do our show there. And as I usually do, I got up Thursday morning, the day of our show, to go for a nice run. And I was running um, along, and I crossed this metal bridge that crosses, uh, I think it's I-35 or Hennepin Avenue, I think, in Minneapolis. People will know it. It's right near the Walker Art Center. And I must have slipped on the wet metal of the metal bridge because the next thing I know, I was on the deck of this bridge. My head was ringing and all my stuff was everywhere. My phone was there. My headphones were there. My hotel key was... And I was collecting stuff and feeling woozy. And I, and I, I put my hand up to my head and my hand stopped a good two inches from my head because that's how big the lump in my forehead was. <laughs> oh, man. And uh, so I, I was like, oh, my God. You know, like... <laughs> There's something about to hatch in there. And I staggered back to the hotel. And I remember one of my colleagues seeing me and going, hey, Peter, how are Oh, God. So I ended up in the emergency room. And basically they said to me, um, well, you have what's called a hematoma. That's like a big sort of, for lack of a word, there's a big bag of blood above your eye. And what's going to happen is it's going to drain into your eye during the course of the day. And you're going to have a huge shiner. And that's what happened. And I had to do a show in front of something like 3,500 people that night. So what I did was I went out and I bought the biggest uh, non-prescription drugstore sunglasses I could find. You know, like the kind that Arnold Schwarzenegger wears in the first Terminator movie. And, uh, and I wore them during the whole show. And I refused to take them off because they said, people were like, oh, show it to us. And I said, no, I'm not going to show it to you because basically if I leave them on, people will say to you, how was Wait Wait last night? And you'll say, it was funny. It was nice. Peter Sagal wore sunglasses. And if I take it off, people will say, how was wait, wait last night? And they'll say, you wouldn't believe this black eye he had. So I was able to do the show despite, uh, despite the blow to my head. That may be the worst injury I've ever had running. It was pretty ugly anyway. Talk about a face made for radio. <laughs> exactly. Thank God no one could see. I did tell people because we were in Minnesota that I got a black eye because I had it out with Garrison Keeler, but you should see what I did to him. <laughs> So I want to ask you about something. There's this dynamic that I've noticed over the years when we have interviewed funny people, ranging from you know Kevin Hart, uh, Drew Carey, uh, stand-up comedian Liz Mealy was on the show a month or so ago, and invariably I always expect them to be funny when they're talking about running. When in fact, by and large, they're they're far more earnest about running than they are about seemingly everything else in their lives. And I think it's because you know, like like all of us, running is such a powerful thing in their lives and, and yeah. they take it seriously and it affects them in, you know, an emotional kind of serious way. And you obviously are a very introspective person as well. Um, wh- what is it a- about running, do you think, that that doesn't necessarily reveal a, a funny side? For one thing, you know, people of, people like me who are funny for a living you know, sometimes we like to be off the clock. If you're someone like me, your main public work, and certainly the face you present to the public, is being funny. And that means you're going to talk about a certain series of a limited number of topics, and you're going to talk about it in a certain way. And that's great, and it's really fun. And I'm not knocking it. But what that means is, is when I'm doing something else, I really want to do something else. There, there's a famous joke that's in the comic book, uh, The Watchmen, where, uh, where this guy goes to a doctor and he says, uh, Doctor, I'm miserable, I'm terrible, I'm, I'm so sad about everything. And the, 
And the uh, doctor says, you know what you should do? I guess just a cure for you. The amazing clown Pagliacci is in town. He's hilarious. He's amazing. He's great. You should go see Pagliacci. He'll cheer you up. And the guy says, doctor, I am Pagliacci. <laughs> and and I don't want to overstress the point. It's not that I'm secretly miserable. It's that sometimes you just don't want to be funny. And yeah. you want to think about things seriously. And you want to work things through. And for someone like myself, running is like not only something that I take seriously, it's it's the time when I can be serious, when I can devote myself to something that's not about making a joke, you know? Yeah. Because if you make a joke about something, you're sort of undercutting it. You're you're pointing out it's silly, you're pointing out it's it's frivolous, you're pointing out it's not important. And which is a really important service and a great thing to do for people and a great attitude to have. But you gotta take something seriously. Yeah. Other, otherwise, you know, you're gonna skate through life and you're not gonna hang on to anything. That makes sense. Compare and contrast, if you would please, sir, the relative pros and cons of running under the influence of beer during a beer mile and <laughs> under the influence of marijuana. Oh, marijuana is so much better. <laughs> For one thing, uh, as if, if I, first of all, to say I ran a beer mile is not true. I ran a beer half mile because that's how far <laughs> I got before I vomited up the beer and quit. Um it was. It, it, I found it. I mean, I thought that it, I would be running while drunk. I didn't realize that I would, in fact, be running while nauseous because r- chugging a kind of warm canned domestic beer and then trying to run a quarter mile was a lot harder in my gut than I ever thought it was. I don't even think I had the time to get drunk. But I was so sick to my stomach. Um, while running under the influence of cannabis, as they like to say, uh, was much more pleasant. Certainly it was less nauseating and I didn't throw up. I mean, you know, I wouldn't recommend either of them uh, to someone who really wants to run fast and well. But um, certainly, you know, uh, of the two, if you have to do one of them, I'd pick cannabis. At least at least the colors are more bright. <laughs> All right. In closing, Peter, what what's next on your running horizon? Do you have a, a race that you're training for at the moment? Well, actually, and yeah, the first thing on my horizon is to finish a book I've been working on for quite some time, a book that changed from its inception to what it will probably end up being. When I pitched the book to publishers some years ago, it was just basically, hey, Peter Sagal, public radio guy, writes about running. He does it for Runner's World, now he does it in a book. Uh, Since then, a lot of things have happened. Uh, My divorce happened, which was quite painful for a lot of reasons. And, uh, of course, the the, book, marathon bombing. As readers of the magazine know, I was standing 100 yards beyond the finish line when the bombs went off. And so I, for the radio series The Moth, I ended up telling a story about that bombing, about my own personal life and how I got ended up there in, in Boston running that race with William Greer from Austin, Texas. There is a connection. And how that race and what happened became sort of both a metaphor to what was happening in my life and a guide for how to get out of it. So basically what the book is now is I'm trying to extend that to write about basically running through the worst year of my life. Yeah. So the worst year of your life being this past year, or do you mean 2013 when the I mean 2013 to 2014. Yeah. Yeah. And writing about that year and writing about running in general and how I sort of quite literally ran through that year. And how did running help, do you think? Well, it provided me... uh, you know, both purpose, because once the bombing happened, uh, it became my focus as well as a lot of other people to get back to Boston and run that race again as kind of an act of defiance against the people who had tried to blow it up. Uh, and also for all the reasons that we all know, running provided me with some a reason quite literally to get out of bed some days when I really couldn't conjure up one. Uh, running gave me a community with my friends. It gave me purpose. It gave me something to focus on. Uh, and it gave me, how best to put this, the practice of persistence, which became very necessary. Mm. Well, I'm glad. And it's especially gratifying to have you on the show, Peter, given that you and I went for a run together in Chicago. It was yes. in, when was it? It was 2010. I remember exactly because I was wondering if I'd be able to survive that year's marathon in Chicago after my bike accident. Right. And I told you about this harebrained scheme that I had to 
I can't even remember how I put it to you. Probably, probably, I probably said I wanted to do a radio show or something yes. like that. Yes, the right? way I remember it, David, is you said, you know, you work for NPR. So many public radio listeners run. What would NPR think of a running-themed radio show? And what I explained was the problem that NPR or public radio would have is that, yes, say, generously, 60, let's say 50% of the listeners uh, to public radio run recreationally. Well, 50% don't. And they would all turn off the radio when it came on, which would <laughs> right. be a problem. And it's a problem for any specialized radio show, whether it be cooking or pets or anything else. And what I said to you is I said, have you considered a podcast? You can do your radio show and the people who actually want to listen to it will find it. And here we are. It's sort of a meta moment, isn't it? It is. It is. I, I feel like I called this into being. That was my interview with marathoner, Runner's World columnist, and radio host Peter Sagal. Next, producer Brian Dalek gets the verdict on his food choices during a recent shopping trip. Just like you need a training plan to become a stronger runner, you need a smartly stocked kitchen to eat well. Yet shopping can be daunting. With thousands of choices, it can be hard to pick out the most nutrient-packed foods to fuel your running. It's especially tough if you're in the throes of marathon training and all of its related cravings and bad habits. So I wanted to know just how smart my food choices were. So I asked our food and nutrition editor, Heather Mayer Irvin, to tag along and observe me in the wild on a grocery shopping trip. Then, afterward, we'd head back to Runner's World headquarters, unpack my bags, and Heather would evaluate my choices and what made them good or bad. So, along with producer Mervyn Deganios, we headed out on a field trip. We hopped in the car and headed to a local grocery store around the corner. Armed with my shopping list, grocery bags, and other shopping armaments, got my coupons... And we headed inside. This was a real shopping trip. I had the shopping list my wife Mara and I put together the night before, and I'd given a copy to Heather so she could follow along. The only thing making this different was I couldn't put my headphones in as I shopped. That and, you know, being watched like an animal every time I approached something. I don't need this many grapes. There's only two people. I'd had a real bad run of picking terrible fruits. There was a mangy cantaloupe one time and some peaches that went bad about 24 hours after I brought them home. Heather had a suggestion for that. Buying fruits and vegetables while they're in season is the best thing you can do in terms of taste. And a greater nutrient bump since in-season produce is typically on shelves shortly after it's been picked. The longer the period between picking and eating, the lower the nutritional content. Next, I saw some chocolate protein shakes. They were on sale, two for four dollars. But they're two for four, Heather. Like, how am I pass this up? You want me to tell you? <laughs> I knew she would eventually tell me, but I ignored Heather's bemused look and put them in my small cart. I felt a lot more comfortable with my next selection. Couscous, or as we call it, coup, is on sale. <laughs> so, Then a place where I could spend an hour, the cereal aisle. I look for a good deal, but, you know, it has to be in my pantheon of cereals that I like because I will have it for mostly as, like, a snack right before bed. So it sounds like you have an idea of what, you know, is healthy, but it seems like what's on sale and what you have coupons for is your main driver for what determines... For cereal or anything? Anything. Not really. Eh, maybe. Was I getting defensive? A little bit. I was raised to always look for a deal. And what can I say? If I can get 50 cents off a box of my favorite snack, I'm going for it. I continued onward, later grabbing frozen waffles. See, they give you the coupons based on what you always buy. And uh, cinnamon waffles are a regular choice in the Dalek household. 
then in the dairy section, we came upon some Greek yogurt. This, I know this can get very judgy. Uh, and I, I internally know, like, I'm doing something wrong every time I buy yogurt. So after filling my cart with meals to get me through the upcoming week, we checked out. I used my coupons, of course. And then you want me to use these two coupons? Yeah. Then we packed the car and headed back to the office. I wondered what the verdict would be on all of my stuff. Were my choices helping or hurting my running? Yeah. We'll get this. So we unpacked my grocery bags. First thing up for evaluation, those frozen cinnamon waffles. All right. Oh, right on top waffles. I'm just going to take a look here. Um, this is actually fairly low in sugar. It's only five grams of sugar, and you get that sign of flavoring from the, the cinnamon, which is good. Let's see. Two waffles, 200 calories. You, know, you top this with some fruit, you know, a side of cottage cheese or, you know, loaf, a glass of milk. You're saying no. I'm giving you healthy suggestions to make it more than just some freezer waffles. By adding protein to my waffles, Heather says, I'm making sure that my breakfast adequately fuels my workout. The carbs provide the energy, while the protein helps repair and rebuild my muscles. But you're my, my no is more, I don't do that. More often than not, there's, you know, the syrup. <laughs> or... What kind of syrup? What kind of syrup? Oh, I get the... The I, fake? Yeah, I get the fake. I would recommend, you know, splurging a little bit on the maple because the fake is real bad. Yeah. <laughs> real bad because it's typically made with high fructose corn syrup, otherwise known as added sugar. More on that in a minute. Maple syrup is less bad. It's still super high in natural sugar, but it does have minerals and antioxidants. So the waffles are kind of a win, but with an asterisk. Maybe I'd do better with the next item. I grabbed some steamable vegetables for Heather to examine. Okay, a bunch of frozen mixed with like regular produce. So like frozen corn, frozen broccoli. It's just quicker to get into like a, the dishes that I make. Um, a lot of people will ask, okay, well, can I get frozen? It's more convenient, but is it as nutritious? It doesn't lose the nutrients. Often you lose nutrients in vegetables when you boil them so much that you've boiled everything out of it. But frozen is a great way to get things that are A, out of season, or B, you know, you stock up your freezer so you have something handy all the time. Great, so I can keep buying my frozen vegetables. After that, a beverage that's a staple in my fridge, a big plastic bottle of pre-made tea. Which brings us to uh, lemonade tea. So this is 3% juice. Uh, there are 36 grams of carbohydrate. 36 of those come from sugar. So you are drinking straight up sugar. And there are health benefits to tea. Mm -hmm, but not, that not like this. Not when it's loaded with sugar. If you want to get health benefits from tea, antioxidants, and some of the caffeine, you're going to want not sweetened or at least you know, add your own a little bit of honey. So I got dinged for the sweetened tea, and I really kind of saw that coming. No bragging rights there. Next up, a bag of pretzels. Heather gave these a thumbs up. After a really hard workout where I've been sweating buckets, a handful of pretzels are a good way to restore my electrolytes and carbs. Heather then grabbed a box of low-fat cookies I'd bought, shot me a glare, and shook her head at me. This wasn't going to be good. Turns out there's a hidden price to eating stuff labeled reduced or low-fat. People, like me, obviously, often mistakenly think if we eat low-fat foods, we're eating healthy. But guess what often makes low-fat food tasty? Sugar. Plus, low-fat foods just aren't as satiating, so we tend to eat more of them. That's because it's the fat in the food that makes us feel full. So my low-fat cookies were delivering a double whammy. Too much sugar and the misleading sense that I could basically eat the whole box. So low-fat cookies gets a big fat minus. Next out of my shopping bag, that Greek yogurt. I've always figured if it says Greek, I'm in good shape. Turns out there's more to it than that. Something else to note about Greek yogurt, it is not a regulated term. Anything can call itself Greek yogurt. So what you want to do when you look for Greek yogurt, the first ingredient, first, or 
maybe the first or second, should be live active cultures. And right now this yogurt, culture pasteurized skim milk, because it's not fat, Mm -hmm. contains five live active cultures and it names them. That's Greek yogurt. Greek yogurt, in order to get the benefits of those probiotics, you need it to be in the ingredients and high up in the ingredients. One problem, however, I didn't even notice that the label said low fat. So while my yogurt was stocked with 15 grams of muscle-repairing protein and loaded with probiotics that keep my gut healthy, it also had too much, you guessed it, sugar. In fact, it contained a sugar called sucralose. So this was another decent but not great choice by me. I can't force myself to change. Other the the cultural shaming of this experience could do that. Shame. Shame. Then we hit something I love, cereal. In fact, my favorite present ever is the cereal dispenser Maura gave me a couple years ago. It's probably the best thing in our apartment. You spend a lot of time in the cereal aisle. Probably the most time. Yeah. I could still be there. It looked like a ritual. (laughs) It was kind of weird to have people around. I usually send Maura away. Like, let, let me just pick this out. You you go finish up. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's uh... I'm very into my cereal. So this is, uh, it's wheat. It's a wheat cereal. It's got fiber. It's got, it's whole grain. So here we say, we see that it says nine grams of protein, which is awesome. Um, the sugar in this is 12 grams of sugar. So it is kind of high in sugar. There is some potassium, which is great. Okay, here's the deal. Heather tells me there are three things you want to look for when choosing a good cereal. One, it should be 100% whole grain. Whole grains are complex carbs loaded with vitamins and minerals and linked to lower risks for things like heart disease. Two, it should have at least five grams of fiber per serving to promote good digestive health. My cereal has six grams, so in pretty good shape there. And finally, sugar. I should always be looking for the sugar. Healthy cereal should have no more than 5 to 8 grams of sugar per serving. My cereal choice on this trip had 12 grams of sugar per serving. And most of that was thanks to stuff like brown rice syrup, also known as an added sugar. And you've probably noticed sugar, specifically added sugars, is everywhere. Added sugars are in my syrup, my tea, my cookies, my yogurt. In fact, it's estimated that 74% of packaged foods contain added sugars. And that's because they do a bunch of things, like helping processed food taste better and sit on the shelf longer. But added sugars can be bad news. Over time, a diet high in sugar can contribute to obesity, heart disease, and high blood pressure. But added sugars can also be hard to avoid and detect. There are at least 61 different names for them. A lot of them end in O-S-E, like dextrose. But a lot of them, like cane juice, don't. Honey and molasses are also added sugars. Bottom line from Heather, read the nutrition label. If sugar in any of its many forms is listed as one of the first three ingredients, maybe I should consider leaving it on the shelf. Now, I have to ask, did you alter your habits at all because I was standing there watching you? Um, this is pretty much stuff I always buy. Slight lie there, I sometimes buy two boxes of cereal. But you go shopping with a nutrition editor and see how you do. After the cereal discussion, Heather went straight for those chocolate smoothies that I'd bought on sale. They were two for $4, I yeah. think. And they have protein, which is great. Uh, like cereal had protein. <laughs> Yeah, just like the cereal with four different types of sugar. So one thing I noticed in general, you didn't look at the labels at pretty much anything that you took. No. At all. No. And I'm not, I'm not judging. Seriously, I'm not judging. Uh, a little bit. But I noticed that. <laughs> when I look at these labels, one of these, the chocolate one, 410 calories per bottle. That's a lunch. But, well, what if I, I, I look at the chocolate one now. This is, okay, I didn't really go through this. I look at the chocolate one as I would have that after, like, a Saturday morning long run. How as long? Like, 18 miles as, like, a recovery thing. That, so that's how I look at that. Right. I, that's the only time I would really probably drink that. Anything, okay. like, shorter, I would do, like, chocolate milk. But okay. that just seemed like a decent, like, treat of something different when I don't have chocolate milk on hand at home. Okay, that's fine. All right, a win. But yeah. let but but 
let's look at the ingredients. This has, so it's a great source of protein, 32 grams of protein. It has 47 grams of sugar. That's insane. Oh, insane because 47 grams of sugar equates to nearly 12 teaspoons. The American Heart Association recommends no more than nine teaspoons per day for men and no more than six for women. I would blow more than an entire day's worth on a single smoothie. Okay, so overall with my general shopping trip, I didn't do so great. I made more decent to poor choices than I made good to great, which bums me out a little bit. But Heather did pick up on some stuff that I did right as a shopper. First, making a list. Lists are really good ways to not go off track, and we can kind of go to the grocery store and get overwhelmed and excited. I mean, But when you have a list, you stick to it. I think you even said at one point you, you grabbed something, and I forget what it was, and you said, no, it's not on the list, and you put it back. And that's a really good tip for people when they go grocery shopping is make a list and stick to it. Something else I did pretty well, I stuck close to the edges of the store as I shopped. We always say work the perimeter. That's where your fresh produce is, your meat, your dairy, all your healthy stuff. And you didn't really wander. You knew what you needed to get because of your list. And that was it. And you made a no. Oh, I didn't even go down the donut aisle. And that's great. My shortcomings as a shopper are simple. I don't read the labels, which means I'm consuming way more sugar than I ever thought. I guess if I really want to run my best, I should spend the extra seconds checking out the contents of my fuel. But good job, Brian. Oh, thanks. I, I was so worried. Don't be worried. I mean, I, I still think I messed up in a lot of things. And, and will I change? Um, it might take some time, but I'll, I'll do what I can. That, that's all we want. We want you to just try. <laughs> thanks, Heather. That was producer Brian Dalek and Runner's World Food and Nutrition Editor Heather Mayer Irvin. For a link to a list of the 61 names for sugar so that you will know what to look out for when you start reading nutrition labels more closely, go to runnersworld.com slash audio. Next up is The Kick with web editor Chris Michael and food and nutrition editor Heather Mayer Irvin. Okay, so one of the first things I want to talk about for The Kick this week is the new New York Roadrunners Run Center. Uh, Heather, one of the things that we both have in common is that we're from New York. Both of us spent uh, a lot of time there. And I know uh, that I spent a lot of time running around Central Park and running to Central Park, which is where the new run center is located. Um, so tell me a little bit about what this center is exactly, because you were there, right? Yeah, I was there last week, their grand opening uh, for the media and their partnership with New Balance. And it's New York Roadrunner's new headquarters, and it's down by Columbus Circle, really close to the park. And it's going to be the central location uh, for bid pickup for all of the New York Roadrunner races, except for the marathon and the halves. Um, it's a really great building, brand new, and it's design, you know, for runners. There's a lot of history. There are a lot of cool medals, all of the New York City Marathon medals. There's a store in there featuring all New Balance products. It's a really cool modern space. Okay. And it's the kind of space that's not just for bib pickup for the races. It's available to runners uh, pretty much all day. And you don't even have to be a member, right? It's basically a, a clubhouse for New York City running. And it's just a place where you can kind of hang out and meet people. There are a lot of runs that will start from there, and they have walking programs. So it's just a place, you know, for New York City runners to gather, whether or not you're a Roadrunner member. What was interesting about it to you, Heather? So it's, it's really cool. You can start running from there. They have a bunch of group runs and group walks for all paces and abilities. They have... Um, almost 80 lockers that are free to use. They have changing rooms, no showers. Um, oh. They have a hydration station, which is really great. And a really cool feature is they have Olympian Jenny Simpson guiding you through exercises on this interactive wall. And she was at the event last week, uh, along with Brenda Martinez. Oh, wow. Okay. So you go to the wall and Jenny Simpson's like, image is standing there, like helping you learn how to do exercises. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. pretty awesome. It was pretty great. Bummer that there's no showers, though. Uh, so now there's also a 
a way to test out gear. Is that right? Yeah. And, you know, other companies and stores have done this before. You can show up and New Balance will be featuring a lot of gear and tech like watches. They just came out with a new watch. And you have the opportunity to basically sign that gear out, go for a group run and then give feedback. Um, Unfortunately, you can't run away with it. But it's a really good opportunity for New Balance to get to get feedback from their new products for you to try something new. Because a lot of times you're like, oh, this might be good. And you don't know until you get it home. And you get a discount for testing gear. That sounds like kind of a deal. Yeah. And another really cool thing is, you know, New York Roadrunners is all about the community. They have Team for Kids. They have the um, Young Runners, the Mighty Milers. Mm -hmm. And this new program with New Balance, every pair of shoes that you buy at this run center, Mm -hmm. they donate a pair to a New York City youth uh, who's involved with the New York Roadrunners. So it's really great. We got to meet some of those kids, and they were pretty adorable. And here's a clip of New York Roadrunners president Michael Caparasso talking about a lot of the cool stuff in the building, stuff you were talking about, Heather, and even the race medals on the wall. We've got a shirt from the 1977 New York City Marathon. Pretty neat, right? And then this, which I can't quite understand why and how this happened, but we have a New York Roadrunners songbook. Someone after a long run apparently was inspired. We managed to find every medal from the New York City Marathon. The first year we started giving them out was 1976. I started in 1991. And I've run all of them since. You can get the medal for 2017. So it's nice to know the next time I'm in New York, I want to run around Central Park, I've got a good place to stash my stuff. So staying in New York, another story that uh, is playing out this week and been getting a lot of buzz on the website is about a group of women who are running a 256-mile relay from New York to D.C. for Saturday's Women's March on Washington, which is the march uh, against the President Trump after his Friday inauguration. Uh, This is being run by someone who actually has been on our website before. So, uh, Heather, tell me a little bit about uh, who is leading this. Sure. It's uh, this woman named Allison Desir who founded the group Harlem Run. And, you know, she and a few other runners mapped out this plan to run from New York City to Washington, Mm D.C., to finish on Saturday with this march. Um, She wanted to raise money for Planned Parenthood. And that's really because she's felt that, you know, and, and other women have felt that Planned Parenthood has been under attack since the recent election and unsure of where it's going forward. This got bigger than just her and a few friends, right? Yeah, it went from four women running a relay uh, to more than 100 women running, which is pretty cool. And um, they set off uh, on Wednesday of this week, and they're basically running nonstop into uh, D.C. And the core organizers are going to run the bulk of the distance, about 20 to 80 miles apiece. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they're welcoming others who want to support their cause. You know, one of the things I think that's really interesting, um, I know it's gotten a lot of attention. They originally wanted to raise $44,000 for uh, for this charity, for, for Planned Parenthood, which apparently, you know, which is, as you said, close to their hearts. Um, but because it's gotten so much bigger, as of the recording of this, they've raised $65,196. And, um, you know, we've still got several days to go before they actually do their run. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty incredible and be interesting to see how it pans out. You can read more about the story and the women who are doing the run on our audio page, runnersworld.com slash audio. And if this is something that you're interested in participating in, uh, you can find out more about how to do that on that page as well. So uh, just to kind of round out the the kick this week, um, another story that we posted up is just simply, uh, you know, some key dates to celebrate in 2017 as we all, you know, at the beginning of the year begin to fill out our runner's calendar. So, Heather, was there anything that you have on your particular runner's calendar that you uh, are looking forward to in 2017? You know, I I race a lot and I get really tired. And so this year I'm actually going to focus less on racing, which normally would take up every weekend of the year, and more on strength training and cross training and some shorter distances. So I'm looking for some more fun races like donut runs. Um, But one of the ones I saw on our our story was – I think, Chris, you liked it too, the uh, trail run in Hawaii, a Ragnar Relay. Uh, I've been to Hawaii, and I ran a little bit, and I'd love to combine them. Maybe – Maybe later this year I can do both of those things. You need a team of uh, 12 to do a Ragnar relay. Is that correct? Yeah. Call in if uh, if you're interested. Yeah, definitely. And what about you? What are you interested in? Uh, you know, uh, I'm a big fan of long words. 
So Really? Yeah. It's one of my hobbies. Uh, so Canada's sesquicentennial is this year. And uh, sesquicentennial, for those of you who are not fans of big, long words, like is, is uh, the 150-year celebration. Sesquicentennial, yeah. It's a good one, isn't it? Um, so uh, the the celebration is going to be in May at the Calgary Marathon, and they're commemorating with a 150K solo or relay race. Uh, I doubt that I'm going to actually do the race, but I'm definitely going to be paying attention to it. And you'll be saying it a few more times. Sesquicentennial. And actually also in May um, – you can head to Hayward Field, which that's one of my dream destinations. It's, you know, it's track town. It's where pre-ran. And they're going to be renovating it soon. So I'd love to get out there. I don't know if I can get out there before May. But they do the Eugene Marathon, the 5K, the half, and to end on the track. So if not this year, one of these days, that's that's my dream. You know, that's that's kind of a bittersweet celebration, the, you know, the, the last of the old Hayward Field. And I think the other bittersweet uh, – Thing that I'm going to be looking forward to, but also feeling a little wistful about is uh, Meb's final run. You know, he's running Boston this year, and then he said his last uh, professional marathon is going to be the New York City Marathon this fall. And uh, while I'm really looking forward to that, I'm also going to be feeling a little sad. It's it's bittersweet for sure, but boy, I can't wait to watch both of those races. All right, well, thanks so much for coming out, Heather, uh, and doing the kick with me. Thanks. That's it for this week's show. Thanks for listening, and please continue sending us your comments and ratings. Your feedback is helping us build a better show. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. This week's show was produced by Sylvia Ryerson, Christine Fennessy, and Brian Dalek. Be sure to join us next week for Executive Editor Tish Hamilton's interview with Coach Jenny Hadfield about how to pick the perfect goal for 2017 and how to stick to it. Also, the first installment of my very own Marathon Moonshot Project. After a futile decade of trying to qualify for Boston, and after taking the past three years off from marathoning altogether, I will aim to run a marathon in May in under three hours and 30 minutes and qualify for the 2018 Boston Marathon. But first, I will train harder and smarter than ever before and share everything I learn along the way. Hopefully there'll be something that you can benefit from in there too. So please join us and we'll see you next week.